Right, so, extinction. I just thought I should open with that word so that you can prepare yourself mentally for the hour of sheer crack we are about to have with each other. Um, yeah, I'm going to be talking about extinction. Extinction Extinction is an inevitable part of the lifespan of any species, just like birth and death are inevitable parts of the life of an individual. The life of a species is marked by mutation, evolution and extinction. Um, it's unavoidable. It's a natural part of life. But extinction is currently happening at an alarming rate. We're seeing plant and animal species disappearing at a rate that hasn't been, hasn't been seen for many, many thousands of years. A really an alarming rate of extinction is what we're living through at the moment. It might seem uh, a, little, a little insensitive, I suppose, to be talking about not just death, but extinction. Um, at the moment, it's May 2020, so where uh, most of us are living through something that we've never experienced before. We've had, we've we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and while before the pandemic the world was in a state of generalized war, normalized starvation, and just general brutality existed in the world, death was a thing in the world. Death is now a bit closer to all of our doors than we're used to. Uh, the, in the form of a virus that isn't very picky or choosy about who it spreads to. And while maybe not all of us are worried about our own lives, we're worried about someone in our life, uh, or multiple people in our lives who are vulnerable or unsafe at this time, or sometimes we might, we might be worried about ourselves as well. So we're all a bit on edge, basically. I certainly fucking am. So yeah, you might be asking yourself, as I'm asking myself, why the fuck would I want to talk about extinction right now? Well, I suppose it's... It's a topic that's always relevant, and I'd hate to think that there's an inappropriate time to talk about extinction. Or to talk about death. They're both scary things to talk about, but sometimes, anyway, when we talk about these things enough, they become a bit less scary and we get some understanding of them. So I think it's important to ruminate on it for a while, but if you're maybe not in the best form at the moment, maybe now you don't want to listen to this. I wouldn't necessarily blame you. I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm usually up for thinking about these kinds of things and talking about them, but sometimes I'm not. And if I'm not, maybe I'll, I don't know. Do you know what? If you don't want to talk about or listen to someone talk about extinction and death and habitat loss and habitat degradation um, and environmental destruction generally for the next hour or so, then I don't know. Go and do something else for a while. Do you know what, actually? Go onto YouTube and type in foxes laughing and watch a video of a fox laughing. It's one of the most ridiculous sounds I've ever heard in my life and I think you'll enjoy it. Like, I mean, I can't imagine why the fuck you wouldn't enjoy it, but yeah, try that out. But if you are in the mood for listening to a podcast on the topic of forestry, which might seem a little obscure at first, but bear with me, uh, it's relevant to your life. Trust me, forestry, forests, trees are very, very relevant to your very existence. I, I mean, I'm fairly sure that's that's probably not news to you we wouldn't exist if trees didn't exist um, so I want to talk about that and that involves talking about extinction and I hope over the next hour or so whatever it winds up being that you will understand why extinction is relevant to this particular topic but it is a strange time for, for most of us it's uh, I'd say we're all feeling fairly unsettled we're cooped up in our homes things just get difficult you know the the problems that are already problems in life just become 
bigger problems when you're stuck with them in your house or when you're stuck with them in your head. Um, which I suppose is why I want to talk about extinction, so it's not just stuck in my head. But yeah, it's hard at the moment. And now this episode isn't going to be about the coronavirus. I'm not going to do one about it as such, but I am going to do one soon talking about why or how can you trust news sources or how do you how do you figure out what's a good source for, of information because there's so much noise and disinformation uh, on the go at the moment that I thought it'd be worth examining maybe talking a bit about how I decide who to trust in terms of news and in terms of uh, what talking head on the internet I decide to listen to because learning figuring out who to trust in your own life you use your gut and you use your intuition and that's usually enough um, but if you want to know how to trust a news source or uh, I don't know, a blog or a website, sometimes that's not enough. You need to be a bit more analytical, I suppose. And like, there's like certain skills you can just you can just practice. You, you can just practice reading the news, basically practice being skeptical. It's the basis of the scientific method is you, you look at something and you just try and disprove it as much as you can until you can't. You've run out of ways to disprove it. And you can do that with the news. And I'm not saying it's foolproof. I'm not saying I'm an, I'm an expert or anything, but... Um, it's just something I, I, I want to talk about because it's uh, they're skills that we all need. We all need these skills of how to how to examine information, basically, because there's so much of it, and we're all inundated with it all the time, and so much of it is pure horseshit. So, like, it's I don't know, yeah, it's just tough. But that's a topic for next time, anyway. For now, I'm going to be talking to you about forestry, and I did this interview with Natalia up in Leitrim, Natalia Bayliss from the campaign group Save Leitrim. The music in this episode is by her band Woven Skull. If you ever get the chance to see them, do, they're class crack. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that now and I hope by the end of this you'll understand why the topic of forestry is very relevant to your life. Um, why forests are, it goes far as to say, is why your life is utterly dependent on the health of forests. But before we get stuck into that, I just want to get a bit of housekeeping out of the way. This podcast, the hosting of this podcast is sponsored by Glushucht. Glushucht for Global Justice, the environmental NGO. Very sound of them to pay for the hosting. Uh, but it's important to note that they um, they don't have any, any say whatsoever over what goes into the podcast. This is entirely just me with sitting in my room with my notions and talking into a microphone. Um, so if you, if you take issue with that and I say, if I say anything that you think is incorrect, or if you want to challenge me on anything, remember it's me. Don't go hassling Glushucht. Um, come and annoy me about it uh, I don't mean to be off-putting I'd love to have a chat to you uh, come and uh, yeah I love arguing with people as well so if you um, if you think I'm talking shite or if I genuinely said something that was just factually incorrect please 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 do give me a shout um, the email is turningearthradio at gmail.com and as well uh, for the last episode on mining a friend of mine Michelle gave me a dig out on the research for that and I forgot to say thanks to her so thanks very much Michelle um, Michelle also does a deadly radio show on Dublin Digital Radio called Pint Baby. Um, I've been listening to that, that a lot while researching this um, class tune, so check that out. And before I forget, I want to say thanks to Gareth. Gareth does, uh, he draws a different image for every episode of Turn on Earth, so you'll see them on the SoundCloud page. If you want to check out more of his work, uh, go on to Instagram and check out probablygareth.art. about time we started talking about forestry and um, what got me interested in this topic initially was the campaign group Save Leitrim 
Now, when I first heard about, say, of Leitrim, I initially thought it was something to do with fracking because uh, Leitrim was, at least in uh, south of the border in the Republic of Ireland, uh, Leitrim was kind of the centre of anti-fracking activism because it's where it's one of the areas that was licensed to be fracked. Um, if you want to know what fracking is, we've done one episode on it. It's come up a lot, but we did one particular episode on it back in 2015, and that explains how just disastrously and horrifically destructive a process that is. It's important to note that fracking has been banned in the Republic of Ireland, but it is still a threat north of the border in the six counties. Um, So if you want to know about that, go back and listen to that episode. You can also listen to the episode on liquefied natural gas. We interviewed people from a campaign, Not Here, Not Anywhere. Uh, When was this now? Towards the end of 2018. Uh, So there's an episode on that as well, if you want to learn about that particular topic. Anyway, I'm rambling. Basically, when I first heard of Save Save Leitrim, I thought it was something to do with that again. Um, so I looked into them and I realised what, what they had issue with was trees, right? And I thought, I, like, I, I initially, to be, to be honest, I was a little bit sceptical. I was like, come on, like, sh-. I thought we all could agree the trees were sound, no? Like, that, whether you're an environmentalist or not, like, trees, trees are all right, no? Like, we're all good with trees, but of course it's not that simple. Uh, when I looked into the topic a little further, I... It gradually dawned on me that I don't think I've ever actually been inside of a forest because what we have here mostly in Ireland is not really what you'd call yeah it's not really forests it's it's what they are, are plantations monoculture plantations or monocrop plantations all the same kind of crop same kind of tree um and that's not really what a forest is I mean when I imagine a forest I imagine dense undergrowth I imagine loads of different kinds of trees I imagine an abundance of wildlife and most of all I imagine being able to look around and never ever see the perimeter I've never been inside of woodland in Ireland where I wasn't able to look around and see oh there's the road or there's the ditch and there's the field next door do you know what I mean it's well, not, not, not next door as such but you know what I mean while I was looking into this topic I came across an article that came out this time last year May 2019 and I remember reading it at the time it was in uh, the Irish Independent in the farming section. Um, a fucking riveting read at the best of times. Um, okay, I'm kind of taking the piss. I shouldn't though, because as a person who lives in a city, it's very easy to forget um, what you're sustained by. And of course, we're all sustained by the efforts of people who work in agriculture. So I don't want to take the piss. Uh, I'm also not from the city. I'm from the countryside. So I don't want to be a self-hating culture. that would be a bad buzz. But uh, anyway, I was reading the farming section, as I do from time to time. And... I read an article that forest cover is now the highest it's been in 350 years, where at 10.5% total land has been forested. Um, and that's up from 1% at the start of the 20th century. So that's that's quite an advancement made. Now, the average forest cover in EU countries, I think, is 30%. So it's still a good bit behind. Um, but we were the forests in Ireland were totally decimated by the beginning of the 20th century. So, And there has been a huge effort of afforestation. Now, I, I, I've learned since that Again, like I said already, the majority of forestry in Ireland is plantation, monocrop, tree farms essentially, and not actual forests. But it's even a little bit worse than that, because when I decided to look into the government report where these facts were coming from, these figures, and the report includes their definition of forestry. I'll read this to you now, this is a direct quote. So a forest, according to the state and the UN, which I was surprised by, a forest is a minimum area of a quarter of an acre with stands of trees five metres or higher with a minimum width of 20 metres. So just to give you a bit of context there, a quarter of an acre, that's about one fifteenth of a GAA pitch. 
that's that's very very little room that's very, that's not much like that's a few trees do you know what i mean and that's their minimum definition and uh, there's no mention of any other plant life or animals or anything like that and I, I don't want to just get pedantic for the sake of it but it's worth looking at what they mean when they say these words because essentially when if if any if ever any state body or the media quoting a state body say forest what they actually mean is plantation a tree plantation but then so that definition is shared with the UN which again was a bit of a surprise to me but then the state goes one further the Irish state goes one further than that and they say that the definition relates to land use rather than land cover and this is another direct quote any open space within within a forest boundary or any areas awaiting regeneration is considered a forest so basically as long as the land is registered as forestry it can be a field surrounded by trees with no fucking trees in the middle of it it's still counted as a forest so not only is most of it monocrop plantations some of it's not even fucking trees and there's some amazing mental somersaults going on here um, for, as well in that report it states 52.4% of all the trees are Sitka spruce and three quarters of the forests so called are less than 30 years old because they get felled after that to be sold for timber now I know that timber production is important I come from Navan in County Meath which is I suppose you'd call it a post-industrial town now but uh, but it used to be that uh, furniture production was a huge industry there there's still lots of people that work in furniture including members of my own family um, and members of my family and loads of people from the town used to work in furniture um, a couple of decades ago before uh, you know it, it all changed for reasons to do with international capital that I'm not going to get into now but basically I know I know how important timber production is I'm not here to argue against growing trees for the sake of producing timber what I'm what I take issue with here is that the state are, are trying to pretend like they're planting forests for their own sake but what they're actually doing is setting up tree farms to sell for timber production basically f- forests have a value in and of themselves they're, they're habitats where I think something like 90% of the species on earth live in woodlands in forests now most of that's in the tropics most of the living creatures on earth are in the tropics They've got the, that's got the greatest biodiversity forests are incredibly important for all of the non-human life around us and of course we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for any of that life we, I know it's important to look after our own species but we can't look after ourselves in isolation that just simply isn't possible we need to look after the whole ecosystem around us and forests are a huge part of that and they have value inherent in them basically what, what I'm trying to get around to saying is that there's something kind of sinister about the Irish government and presumably other governments as well and the EU and the, the UN trying to change the definition of a forest to something to, to use such a simple definition that's something that exists purely for timber production for wood production the, 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 the definition of it is so na- narrow and so very simple but it's also very vague I mean it doesn't really it doesn't describe in any meaningful way what a forest actually is and they didn't come up with that definition for no for no reason I mean that that's a tactical decision it makes it makes it sound good to their voters and to their constituents uh, maybe it simplifies things for the planning process or something but ultimately it gives the rest of us the wrong impression it makes the situation seem less dire it makes it seem like things are getting better ultimately it's just a fucking lie 
I mean, they aren't forests, not by any definition. And I mean, like, I know you don't, you probably don't need me to give you any dictionary definitions of, of what a forest is. You can look that up yourself. But if you look at them, most of them, not all, but most of them include other plant life. So they give a more tree, even, even a one line dictionary definition gives a more three dimensional picture of what a forest is than the state's definition does. Okay, the state's one, it includes a bit more detail, but it leaves out the most important details, which is that there's other life there. And also that there has to be fucking trees there for it to be considered a forest at all. Now, interestingly, both the dictionary and state definitions left out animal life and also left out the complexity of the relationships between the plants and animals that inhabit the forest. It's just, it's just an incomplete picture, basically. Understanding this definition that the government use of forest kind of helps me make sense a bit of why the people of Leitrim have such a problem with it. Not every person in Leitrim does, but a lot of people do. And uh, this campaign group, Save Leitrim, are drawing attention to these issues. Um, here's Natalia. Save Leitrim uh, mostly started um, to raise awareness about specifically Sitka spruce, which is a type of conifer, and it's the main type of conifer that's getting planted around Leitrim and that's been getting planted for about the last 30 years. So it's been planted maybe even longer, probably about 50 years or so. But um, uh, so it's they started planting a lot more of it in Leitrim than anywhere else. And um, so we're seeing a lot of the effects in Leitrim of Sicus Bruce more than the other the rest of the country has, but I think the rest of the country will start seeing the effects now that Sicus Bruce kind of starts growing up taller there, and um, yeah, the, the effects that it has on the environment and the, on communities and ecologies and habitats, and uh, but yeah, and and it is it is happening all up and down the west of Ireland. It's just we're seeing the effects here first. That's why Save Leitrim started, and now there's Save Cabin and Save Carry. And there's a lot of people in Cork concerned because, and Mayo is, and Roscommon, and they're just gonna, they wanna like plant the whole country, and it's not in lovely trees, it's in like monoculture plantations. And, and you might be thinking, right, yeah, big deal. It's all just one kind of tree. So, yeah, okay, fair enough, that's less cracked than there being loads of different kinds of trees, but really, why is that such a big deal? Well, Natalie's gonna explain that over the course of the next half hour or so. We had a good chat when we met in Leitrim last August, I think it was, and she's going to explain to you the the issues with it from a local perspective in County Leitrim. But before I move on, I want to define as clearly as I can three different terms, which some of which have already come up in the podcast and some of which are going to come up a lot more. The two main ones are monoculture and biodiversity. Monoculture basically means growing a single kind of crop, plant or livestock species. So okay, one animal, one type one type of plant. Sitka spruce plantations are an example of a monoculture. A field full of one breed of cow is an example of a monoculture. A field full of cabbage, that's a monoculture. It's become a popular method in industrial scale agriculture because it generally increases efficiency and it has the potential to increase yield, but it also increases the amount of diseases and pests because when you have all the one type of plant, it's easier for diseases relevant to that plant to spread it's, and it attracts more of the pests. Uh, so I shouldn't say use the word pests, it's not a very useful definition. It attracts the kind, kind of insects that eat that plant. So in that way, it, it, the, 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 the yield, the overall crop yield is often lower than in, uh, in polycultural or permacultural or basically methods that use more than one kind of plant and more than one kind of animal. 
but essentially that's what it is. It just means one type of plant. It has a deleterious effect on the strength of the soil and the amount of nutrients in the soil. It's generally just worse for the soil than polyculture. But again, people use it because it's more efficient, less labor, and in theory, it can increase the yield type. Um, but it also means because of the increase of pests and diseases, people use more insecticides, more uh, sprays to kill insects and more herbicides to keep the weeds down. And overall, it's, it's having a, an incredibly, incredibly bad effect on the land that we depend on for our existence. The next term is biodiversity. Now I'm sure you've heard this a lot. The government last summer, I think it was, declared a biodiversity and climate emergency. Um, now that was just words. They haven't really done that. And oh, sorry, I shouldn't. That sounds they, not that they haven't really done that. And they literally haven't have done fuck all about that in any practical way. But the word biodiversity is in the news a lot. Not as much as climate change. It's been overshadowed a bit by climate change, but. It's a word that you might be familiar with, but just so we're working with the same definition. Biodiversity means the totality of genes, species and ecosystems of a region. So that means diversity within species, diversity between species and diversity between ecosystems. So how many different kinds of species, how much diversity there is within that species and how many different kinds of ecosystems there are in a region. So. What's meant by diversity within species is the genetic diversity. So take humans, for example. We've got humans with blue eyes, humans with brown eyes. That's an example of genetic diversity. Generally, the greater de genetic diversity there is within a species, uh, the more resilient that species is. Um, and the same thing is true for an ecosystem. An ecosystem is more resilient if it has a, a diversity of species within it. And what resilience means is it's more resistant to sickness and to uh, viruses and to all the rest of it. And of course, diversity between, between eco ecosystems. Um, so how many different types of ecosystems there are. Is there forests, are there lakes, um, marshlands, bogs? And this is why I opened up by speaking about extinction, because we are living through a biodiversity crisis. And what that means is that ecosystems and species are disappearing at a rate faster than they can regenerate. And that's being driven by consumption. And the final word I want to define uh, is rewilding. And rewilding, basically, you're you're probably familiar with the concept of conservation, of um, protecting areas where that are important habitats for different animals, non-human creatures. Um, rewilding is the, the the idea of taking land that's been domesticated, that's been changed for human use and setting, setting it up so that it, it, it returns to a state of wildness. Um, and that's important for protecting species habitats, which have nations uh, are actually just words on paper and they don't really have much weight in reality. But essentially rewilding is important because it's not enough to just protect these areas because that still leaves species vulnerable to extinction because uh, they're left so small and isolated. And that's a big part of rewilding is joining up all the different areas. If you remember from earlier, the state's definition of a forest allows any wooded area of one fifteenth of a football pitch size can be counted as a forest. So it means we've got, they say the country's 10% forest, but it's actually just all these scattered little patches of trees, which isn't very beneficial for all the different animal life that is supposed to live in forests. So it's basically about restoring, setting areas up so that the natural self-regulating systems um, the complex self-regulating systems of, of, of wild ecosystems can begin to restore areas that have been degraded over time. 
Another aspect of it is to do with ourselves and undoing a bit of our own domestication and realising ourselves as part, realising that we are a part of a broader ecosystem, even though we're surrounded, most of us live surrounded by concrete all the time and surrounded by human-made structures. I do, I live in a city and I love it. Even though I do love human culture and I spend most of my time with humans, I am a human after all, we have become disconnected from the rest of our our habitat essentially and it's it's bad for us in loads of ways. I'm going to let Natalia explain to you the issues specifically with Sitka spruce that they're facing in County Leitrim but in doing so she's going to give you a picture of what the issues are with monocrops, monocrop culture, monoculture in general. So yeah because it's monoculture um, there's the pine needles that fall into the ground are acidifying the soil more than it can really handle and is being planted quite close to lakes and rivers so the pine needles are falling into the lakes and rivers and um, they've done studies uh, Queen's University did a big study on Loch Melvin up in North Leitrim um, just to look at the levels um, of acid in the water and it's it's just with so much planting happening, happening around there um, yeah the Water is completely different there to near there, and um, you see a decline in um, all kinds of other life, especially aquatic life. Then, um, and so that's one of the just like with like you were saying with any monoculture, it causes problems. So, one of the other big problems is when they go to replant Sitka spruce once they clear fell it, when they go to replant it. Um, Pine weevils have moved in, which love Sitka spruce. What are pine weevils? So they're a little beetle. And, um, you know, usually if you have them in a forest, it's not so bad because there's lots of other things to eat them because there's a good, healthy ecosystem. And there's not a worry. They might eat a few baby Sitka spruce, but other ones will grow. But because there's only Sitka spruce, there's so many pine weevils that when they cut down the mature Sitka spruce, all the pine weevils fall to the ground and have nothing to eat. So... When they come to replant, there's so many pine weevils that um, they all start eating the little baby Sitka spruces. And because of that, um, they have to use insecticides. Well, they don't have to, but... But they do, yeah, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> but they use insecticides. So um, they used to use a lot of cypermethrin, which is one kind of insecticide that um, is illegal to use in the rest of the EU. But they got a degradation to use it. And um, that deg- that just means like a pass from the EU okay. to be able to use it here because they kind of wrote and went, oh, but we're only little farmers of, you know, <laughs> Sitka spruce, oh, woe be me, we're quail chunt. It yeah, was, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, um, yeah, so these said like, okay, you can use this like really nasty toxin, toxic insecticide um, for the next, I think, I think they got it for five years and, but they're supposed to come up with a, another solution. So, that is nearly up and so what they're doing now is just like panic planting and um i just want to interject for a second and talk about that word that natalia used a minute ago um the actual word is derogation i'd never heard this word before so i had to go and look it up uh, natalia explained what it meant there it just means a pass uh, a derogation it's an example of uh, the word is an example of legalese legalese is basically where the legal profession and policymakers use unnecessarily complicated and convoluted language to keep that sort of information exclusive and difficult to understand. It's a way of conserving their own power. It kind of reminds me of how the medieval church operated. Um, The Catholic Church in medieval Europe, all the masses were done in Latin, which the common folk didn't speak. 
Um, so this gave the priests an extra level of sort of privilege and standing above them because they were able to speak this language which was closer to God or whatever. I mean, it wasn't, it was just an older language that most people didn't speak, but it gave them this extra power because they were the only ones who could speak the sacred language. And it's kind of, legalese is kind of similar. Um, there's no logical reason for them to say derogation when they could just say an exception. They're making an exception to the rule, but they use this word. And it's just one example of, of, of the type of language people some people call it legalese that gets used to make these topics seem more complicated than they actually need to be another thing i want to address is an excuse natalia brought up there that the state often use which is that oh, we're only small we're only we're only ireland we're the sure we're the greatest little country in the world to do business in as enda kenny said they use the same excuse for falling flat on their climate change commitments i just want to address the the fact that Quilche have used that excuse. Quilche are the biggest landowner in the country. They own 7% of the land. Uh, that's over a million acres. Um, they are, they're not really, a they used to be a state company. They used to be part of the civil service, but they left in 1989 and they're now a commercial company. Like they're, they're owned by the government, but they operate as a commercial company. They're worth over 2.3 billion euros annually. Uh, and if you read their website, they're very clearly commercially focused. And this is a direct quote from their website. They want to become the best forestry company in Europe by 2025, and this, this is a direct quote now. Achieving this will mean fundamentally transforming the company into a highly profitable and cash-generating business. An executive of Quilche referred to Sitka spruce trees as the Frisian cows of trees, which will give you some indication as to where their true motives lie. They often say that their motivation is to mitigate against climate change and to protect biodiversity, but every single one of their goals is directly contradicting that. Um, they have set up a thing called Quilcha Nature, which is this NGO to like look after recreational forests and biodiversity and that, but it's kind of a tokenistic gesture when you look at what they spend the bulk of their resources doing. Interestingly, only one member of their board has any forestry experience. The rest are from finance and business backgrounds. And one final point about the EU. The EU had, uh, I can't remember the exact name of the plan, it was basically something along the lines of Biodiversity 2020. And it was this uh, this plan they had to curb the destruction of habitats in Europe by the year 2020, which is now, by the way, uh, in case anyone was has forgotten. I know time's a bit hazy at the moment, but yeah, it is currently 2020, and the plan has been a resounding failure. Um, any any study done on the effects of the plan have found that basically there's been no change. Well, not that there's been no change. Things have gotten worse. Things have continued to get to degrade, and to species are still disappearing and. Yeah, things are things are shit basically, and it's not really surprising when you see how how lax they are with just letting in industry carry on with whatever bullshit they want to carry on with. Speaking of which, I'll drop Natalia back in now to describe a little bit more about the just the insanity of this process. So, like, they often plant on bogs, um, and they often plant on habitats for like birds, like curlew habitats, and. Um, uh, hen harriers, which are both facing extinctions. So there's a problem where like those habitats are being given over to monoculture forestry. And uh, the problem with planting on bogs, more than just it's a problem, is that bogs sequester so much carbon. So they're saying like they're getting, there's all these grants to plant trees through the government and um, the grants come from taxpayers' money. And the whole idea is like we need trees and we need to plant trees because we need to sequester more carbon. But um, they're being planted on bogs that are already sequestering loads of carbon. So all that carbon's being released into the air. And then um, 
like so and then they plant the trees which is supposed to sequester the carbon but then they cut down all the trees in one foul swoop and then they have to like use diesel to like you know use the machines that harvest the trees and the machines that transport the trees and then like a lot of the trees are sold abroad so they're all being moved and carbon's being used in the whole process and so all these figures about carbon sequestration and commercial forestry in Ireland aren't adding up anywhere and somebody told me recently um they came across a place where like they have these huge dryers as well that dry the trees so they can process them faster so I can only assume the amount of carbon this big drying process is but um so yeah and then so like there's a healthy diverse you know ecology going on somewhere they come in they dig that all up to be able to plant the trees they plant all these monoculture trees completely change that habitat wipe off wipe out everything that was there to like because it's this monoculture and then they cut down all those trees so then anything else that may have gone and been living there for the next last 30 years gets wiped out and um, then the whole process kind of goes again and as you can imagine the process that Natalia is describing there has an incredibly destructive effect on the land. And ultimately, if if let continue like that, it could just make the land totally unviable for sustaining life at all. Now, you'll probably understand intuitively why that is just by listening to what's happening. But um, I'll share with you now what I've learned in looking into this. The two main points that were brought up there were they, these are often used by the government in justifying their current forestry policy and by the industry, by the likes of Quilcha and the big companies involved in cash crop forestry, they often use these two justifications. They say that this model of forestry is good for conserving biodiversity and they say that it's good for carbon sequestration. So that's where carbon is sucked out of the air by the plants and stored, which we we need to do that to curb climate change, to mitigate against climate change. Now, many studies have shown that paying people to plant trees is more financially effective, more cost effective than carbon tax. Carbon tax is a, a, a useless way to combat climate change. It's not going to work. It's not going to have any positive effect. It, it potentially could if it was done alongside loads of other measures, but that's the one thing the state, that the Irish state anyway so far, have really put forward as a proactive thing about climate change. And it is, it's a shockingly poor idea. Um, I w- would not support the carbon tax at least not in, in the current context. It's the kind of thing that might make sense as part of a broader strategy that, that includes encouraging renewable production. But the states are doing the opposite of that. They're, I mean, for example, they want to build a liquefied natural gas platform in the southwest uh, to import fracked gas from the states. Um, it'd make sense maybe if alongside funding and promoting public transport, but the state aren't doing that. They're doing the exact opposite. They're promoting private transport. They're promoting private car use. So it doesn't make sense to tax people and then limit their alternative options. But that's just an easy thing for government to do. Well, I suppose it's easier to take money off people than to actually do anything about the fucking problem. But anyway, I'm not going to rant about the carbon tax now. So yeah, paying people to plant trees is more effective for fighting climate change. It is an effective way and it definitely has to be something we do. But studies are also clear that if you want to conserve biodiversity and you want to sequester a lot of carbon, it's essential that you avoid monoculture. Plantation forests have lower primary production than natural forests. Primary primary production is basically the, the way the plants make, uh, convert the sun's energy into food for themselves. So they, 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 they take the sun's energy, harness it and convert it into wood 
and other stuff that we can then use. They essentially that's why it's called primary production. There, that's where our energy comes from. And they also take carbon and put it down into the soil. There's also lower biomass, which basically means there's just less living things. Biomass is just the weight of all the living things in the area. There's less of that, so just there's less plants and animals essentially, and there's less litter fall, which is the where the trees fall, or the leaves fall from the trees onto the ground that's really important for the, how much nutrition there is in the soil for the plants much less of that in um, plantation forests so the soil isn't getting replenished um, and Natalia will describe a bit more about that later there's also yeah as I said much lower carbon input into the soils and that's the key thing that's the, the main lie as far as I can see that I keep coming up against when I read pro-industry arguments which is that the carbon that the trees suck out is then stored in the the end products that the trees are used to make. Now that that struck me as bullshit initially, and the more I read about it, the more I realise it is it kind of is bullshit. I'm sure some carbon is stored in the wood panels and all the rest of that, but a lot of this gets used to make wood chips as well, which are then burnt, and that releases the carbon anyway. And also, as Natalia already pointed out, there's a huge amount of carbon spent in the process. So you heard there Natalia's anecdotal evidence from her experience of living in County Leitrim. But studies also back this up. Studies have shown that uh, plantation forestry end-to-end has sometimes a neutral but usually a net negative effect on carbon sequestration. Because the key thing here is that the carbon, the plants suck it out of the air but then they transfer it into the soil. And for reasons I'll get onto in another little while, that doesn't really happen in plantation forests. Certainly not to the same extent it happens in a natural diverse forest. And that's the key thing really is that there's just less genetic diversity so that the, the habitat is less resilient and there's less pollination. And that's really vital because we need pollination in order for all habitats to exist and in order for our food to get produced. Another thing that plenty of studies have shown is that human crops, so food that we eat that depend on pollinators, they do much better when there's natural forest and diverse forest around and they don't do very good near plantation forests. The importance of pollinators to human existence is becoming more and more appreciated now. We understand more and more about why why that's important for our lives. Um, of course, it's much more important for the bees' lives that they have food to eat, but uh, we de- we depend on 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 pollinators for so much of our food and our en- our energy uh, because they produce they 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 pollinate basically so many different plants. And yeah, plantation forests aren't very good for them at all. But the state. Uh, the, the department, the forestry department, and Quilcha and the likes of that, they persist in using these arguments. And if you look at the um, if you look at the studies that they use, there's no outright lies in it, but they always they always use examples that are guaranteed to back up their own argument. So they compare monocultures to other monocultures. So they say, all right, a plantation forest is good for carbon sequestration and good for biodiversity, but the study it they use, they're comparing a plantation forest to a farm. So essentially saying that a field full of trees is better for biodiversity and carbon sequestration than a field full of vegetables is. Obviously that's going to be true, but if you compare a plantation forest to an actual forest, then they're way less effective. They they, they hold on to less water, they hold on to less carbon, and they support a lot less life. That's just straightforward fact. There's, There's loads of studies that back this up, and as I said, any study I use in this episode... I will link in the uh, the Turning Earth blog if you want to go and check it out yourself. Now that that's an example of confirmation bias, where a person, or in this case, an entire industry, have already made up their mind about something, or or the the government department they've they've got their their story and they're sticking to it and they're going to, again, not lie, but they're going to selectively look at information to back up their argument. And now, 
it, it'd probably be a bit arrogant of me to think that I don't also do that. You know, I'm sure I do. Uh, it's 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 a very unconscious process. This uh, this this phenomenon of confirmation bias, where you constantly look for ways to rationalise your own position. That's an unconscious thing. So I'm sure I do it as well. Of course I do. But I do make a conscious effort to disprove my own arguments and to seek out people with opposing opinions and read what they have to say or listen to what they have to say. And the one borderline convincing argument I've heard in favour of plantation forests is that they ease the burden on natural diverse forests. Plantation forests currently meet about two thirds of global demand for timber. And of course deforestation, like what's happening in the Amazon right now, um, contributes to about 20% of global carbon emissions. And also like the already existing natural forests are where most of life on earth lives, or at least, sorry, most most of uh, land-based life on earth live in forests. So it is very important to ease the burden on um, on habitats, but that argument kind of falls apart when you consider how the the plantations are treated. They're all it's already been demonstrated that they don't host as much life anyway, but they're also failed after twenty or at most thirty years. So it's hard to it's hard to really that argument doesn't really hold much water when you consider the fact that okay yeah they're planting a forest but then they clear fell it at the very end. Then I mean that's just deforestation. It's just a, a, a sort of managed and staggered deforestation, but it it just doesn't make for a very um, very convincing argument ultimately and again like I said studies have shown over and over again if you want to conserve biodiversity you need to avoid monoculture so it's clear that the whole process is a is a deeply irrational process with a single motive in mind and that's that single motive is profit they say there's all these that, that you know they kind of use biodiversity and carbon sequestration as ways to bolster it but when you actually look at what's going on it's clearly just done with profit in mind and it's 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 not using the latest information that we have available to us i mean if i can find this stuff out by looking online then surely someone from the department can someone from culture can figure this out um it's not that difficult like i don't know it, it seems very straightforward to me now that i've learned about it when you compare the story that the government are telling to what's actually happening on the ground it seems like an example of greenwashing think back to that Irish independent article I mentioned where they talked about forest cover being 10.5% you know the biggest it's been in 350 years which was taken from a government study saying as much and then you look at what, what that actually means in real terms is there's loads of Sitka spruce plantations that are being clear felled after 20 years yeah that's an example of greenwashing and greenwashing is basically a, a tactic where this, uh, the state or a, a corporation use the climate crisis or the biodiversity crisis or environmental environmentalist language uh, to to mask or to cover up increased production and increased destruction. It's incredibly cynical. It's an incredibly cynical way of turning a crisis into a way to make profit for themselves. I suppose the carbon tax is another example of that. Governments love using crisis as an excuse to drain wealth from us right I feel like I've been rambling for a little bit too long so I'll drop Natalia back in now and she's going to talk to you a bit more about the, just the scale the industrial scale of uh, of this process and what the human kind of social and human costs are so I initially asked her what's the average lifetime of a Sitka spruce plantation 
ideally, I think 30 years for sick as Bruce, though sometimes it's 20 years. And I've read studies that say that um, they don't even really know how many times they can plant it before the soil is spent. So like it's two possibly or three plantations of Sitka spruce before you can't grow anything else in the soil. The soil is like dead completely. So that's a big problem because, you know, yeah. Oh yeah, we saw it on the way in there. The It looked kind of apocalyptic, all right. The, the kind of just wasteland of broken branches and it, it looked like just just dead wood, basically a big, huge area full of dead wood. Um, do you know, like, has, is that the first time that's been planted or is it how many cycles? Yeah, that so that's the first time that's been planted. And um, it actually doesn't look so bad now. Like it looked really bad uh, when it first happened. And even at that, people were coming over and saying, oh, this doesn't look so bad compared to other ones I've seen. Like they did a much neater job. But um, yeah, so this is the second plantation they want to come back and do. So we're trying to convince them to leave areas to rewild naturally because you know they just need to rewild and if they did leave the areas to rewild for four or five years like all the pine weevils are dead then all the larvae and all the adult pine weevils are all dead so they wouldn't need to use insecticides but like because it's all about profit and turnover like they just want to plant as much as they can as quick as they can and um, a lot of the land that's being bought up is from big farmers, let's say down south, where you know they might have much bigger farms. So there'd be people coming up here um, and buying land. And then uh, a lot of retirement funds would buy land. So you'd get like, um, the land around here is owned by I4UT, which is a big retirement fund set up by AIB, Irish Life, and Quilcha. Um, so that's all their money is invested in that. And then you get a lot of um, retirement funds of like, let's say, Canadian Teachers Retirement Fund or um, a group in Norway. Uh, and the thing about that then is that it's Irish taxpayers' money directly going towards a Canadian Teachers Retirement Fund, which just seems a little strange because shouldn't that Irish taxpayers' money be kept in Ireland to help you know, with services needed in Ireland rather than the profits being uh, sent abroad to other countries? Because... You know, there's so many other problems with um, like commercial forestry. What, one of the big problems is roads. Like they just tear up the roads completely. Like these little roads, you get the big articulated trucks on them and there's so many potholes and they don't have to fix that because, you know, the government doesn't have anything written in saying they have to come and fix the roads or our neighbor's got a drainage pipe and he's really worried that the tri- trucks going up and down by his house are gonna damage the drainage pipe and he's not sure what to do about that or who to approach. There's no communication with the people who live around the plantations. So a lot of people have no idea who owns the plantation right next door. Nobody ever came up and said, I'm buying the land next door. I'm going to plant trees. So when there are problems or concerns, a lot of people don't know who to get in touch with. Um, And the problems that come up are trees will fall on people's land. And around here, um, before they cut them down, the trees were falling on the roads. So like there'd be these huge, I mean, they're ton weight trees hanging over the road. And, you know, you'd see like kids on bikes kind of cycling by under these like huge trees. And eventually they do fall down. It's just the wrong gust of wind. And you would just watch them thinking like, what if my neighbor, like, you know, my little old lady neighbor is driving by and a tree falls and crushes her car. Like it's not absolutely like when you see them falling all the time, it's not completely crazy. It's because they're, they're not right for the soil. Like they don't, penetrate down into the soil deep enough with the roots so they're just sitting on top of the soil and they get to a certain height and they just start falling over and 
just while we're talking about soil, I want to dwell on that for a second. We need soil, obviously, for to grow our food and to sustain the habitats that sustain us. At the moment, soil is eroding 10 times faster than it's replenishing. Uh, nearly half of all productive soil has disappeared in the last 150 years. Uh, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that we have about 60 years worth of topsoil left for food production and after that point there won't be enough topsoil to feed everybody on the planet. The causes for this are intensive tilling, intensive agriculture, a lack of cover crops, the use of fertilizers, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. And essentially monocrop agriculture is a big part of this problem. Uh, government policies the world over encourage specialization, this kind of narrow focus on profit and producing product. And this accelerates degradation. Neil, remember we talked earlier about uh, the 30-year forest cycle that Quilchy use, where they plant a forest. After 30 years, they clear fell it and then replant it after two years. It's written into the legislation that the ground has to be replanted after two years. If you think about how that maps on to the UN's 60-year estimation for how much topsoil we have left to grow food, that's only two cycles of plantation. So like, what good is that going to be to us in 60 years' time? Oh great, we've got a load of wood panels cool we can build boxes and shelves to store our non-existent food class another thing that came to mind there when thinking about the UN's information about topsoil is that now I believe that information it makes sense to me um having having read the report I understand it but I do tend to take this this kind of stuff with a pinch of pinch of salt uh maybe that's the wrong way of putting it but I, I approach it with skepticism because governments the world over, have a tendency to use scarcity as a way of controlling the population. And I know that sounds conspiratorial, but think about how the government responded to the, to the banking crisis here. That was risks and gambles taken by a small number of people. And then they said, all right, now all you have to pay for it. Uh, and they implemented austerity measures, cutting back on public services. And it's led to the, the current housing crisis. I mean, we've a, we've a housing crisis now that's the housing situation is nearly as bad as it was before we got out from under the thumb of the empire, you know. Essentially what I'm saying is while governments do tend to use scarcity as an excuse, they're also the ones creating this scarcity in the first place. They're, they're like th These policies are decided upon at the upper levels of society, at the government level, at the corporate level. That's where these decisions are made to just use and use and use up the land and don't give it a chance to recover and just use it for the, to make profit, essentially. Now, where does that leave the rest of us? What's, wh what are we going to have in, like, okay, in 60 years, I'll be in my 90s if I'm still around even. It's not me I'm worried about, but what about the kids that are coming up now, or their kids? What's going to be left for them? But that's the main thing to focus on, I think, is that these decisions get made at govern government level. Because... What, what the solutions that often get pushed about the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis and environmental issues in general is that if you just can change your consumer habits if you buy more sustainable products if you switch to an electric car I mean that's really what the government are focusing on in terms of the climate crisis so a switch to an electric car consumer solutions are a big lie because like I said these decisions the decisions that affect huge areas of land and affect things on the in on a, on a big scale those decisions get made at government level it's we all have a part to play but it's not our responsibility it's the responsibility of the people who make these decisions 
It's worth asking even if those people should be allowed make decisions like this, or if anyone should be allowed make decisions of such magnitude, especially if they're so resistant to the latest information and the latest scientific developments. It's really strange because I was talking to a Quilcha manager and I said, well, what about these studies? And he was like, well, I don't believe those studies. And I think a lot of like, like, and then another guy who was planting trees out here, um, he was saying that uh, they were taught in forestry school that Sitka is really good for conditioning the soil and leachum. So I don't really know what information they're getting or if they're getting necessarily like up to date um you know, studies, uh, but they're kind of going on these like old facts and old figures that maybe are pretty outdated and aren't reliable anymore. And they're kind of going forward based on that without kind of looking at like, what are we actually dealing with now? What do we need to be dealing with now that we've learned about all this? Um, is it cherry picking, do you think, or is it unintentional ignorance? Because you, you get that a lot with climate deniers. I know we don't, we don't have many of them in Ireland, thankfully, but um, they'll use studies that are long since debunked from the late 90s. That's like not that long ago in historical terms, but in terms of climate science, it's a lifetime ago in terms of what we know now versus what we knew then. I think most people working in commercial forestry don't know. Like, they just think they're working with trees. I think, like, the, it, for them it's a job and they might like nature. And I, re I really don't think they know because a lot of the people you talk to that do come to work around here, like, they'll be like, oh, I've, I've never thought about that if you mention things. So, but there's certain people that can't not know, like ministers and heads of company and, um, you know, people who write a lot of articles, let's say for like, you know, agricultural publications, like they have to know because it's been pointed out to them by the, you know, by now, like there's no way they can't be aware that there is a problem, but they're still just plowing on. Um, there's problems with clear felling, like they can kind of go and just put in a license and completely clear fell an area. So right now in Minimore, which is up in the north of Leitrim, Quilchon, um, a big section of land up there and they want to clear fell it. And um, the farmers around there don't want them to clear fell it because it's, I think, I'm pretty sure it's because it's on a slope. So when they clear fell all the sediment will start running down into, into the body of water that's down at the bottom. And, you know, it, it causes a lot of other problems, as you can imagine, when you just clear fill an area, like everything's just going to move and change. And um, so they stopped clear felling at the beginning of summer because they found a nest up there of, um, I think it was sparrow hawks. Because, like, the Irish, Irish Wildlife Act says you can't cut any trees between the... Uh, I can't remember when it starts, but until the end of August, you and I couldn't go out there and cut any trees. But that doesn't apply to the big forestry companies. They can do whatever they want at any time, which is really crazy because a certain you know, set of rules applies to everyone else and then a certain set of rules applies to them who own a lot more land and can do a lot more damage. So anyway, the birds are done nesting and they've put in another license to clear fell. And um, I don't know what's going to happen up there, but people aren't happy and people are also not very shy up there, the local farmers to go and, you know, just physically put tractors in front of their machinery and just say, no, like, we don't want you to come in here and doing this. Um, but other problems that exist are like, we didn't realize in the time we lived, lived here, like how tall, how quickly all the trees had grown around us because we were surrounded on all four sides. And it was only when they all got cut down that we just had so much more light and it's so much warmer here now than at our neighbor's house that is right next to us, but still surrounded by trees and drier. So you don't realize how much of your light is getting taken away. 
And you get places where like someone might live really rurally in a house and um, suddenly the land around them is sold and the trees are planted and where they could see their neighbors and could see other people in the distance, within five years that view is gone. And that just means that they become really isolated. So you get people writing to you talking about like really bad mental health effects from suddenly being so surrounded by, they're not forests, they're not lovely wooded places. They're these monoculture, like, you know, thick, dead zones. And so it's not like you got that dappled light from the sun kind of coming through all the different trees. And it's not like in winter you get more light. It's like you're just behind this total wall of dark sort of, yeah. Yeah, because I remember hearing about that when I first started looking into this, that it was contributing to rural isolation was the way the article put it. And I couldn't understand why at first, but that makes a lot of sense. Because it because it because it, it grows so quickly and takes over so quickly. Yeah, like one of our uh, friend of mine who lives um, in Roscommon was saying, like they used to be able to see a neighbor of theirs about a mile away over the fields, and um, one day they got this call at five in the morning, and uh, it was the neighbor saying, "I think your house is on fire." She got up in the morning, went outside, and saw smoke from near their house, and they went out, and it was actually another of their neighbors burning trash. But but she could see that, and then all the land between them got sold and within five years they can't see your house anymore. So if you're kind of used to being able to see your neighbors and see your community and you kind of feel like if something's happening, somebody will be able to see you and then suddenly you're just can't be seen anymore. And, you know, there's a lot of bachelor farmers and a lot of like people living on their own all around and suddenly they're just really isolated um, visually from what they've seen their whole lives and for generations and generations and generations. Um, it takes a lot of light away from grazing areas for animals. So if Sitka's planted right up next to your farm and your field, like the shadow cast from the Sitka, so like they get really, really tall, you know, and the shadows cast from going on the land where nothing's growing for sheep to graze anymore or cattle to graze or, you know, whatever you might have. Um, so that's a big problem for farmers as well. Um, and then... Um, if a house is planted uh, all around it and people don't want to live there anymore, it just means the population is getting less and less and less because there's less places to live. And uh, so uh, there's also the problem with rural population decline is that um, forestry can pay a lot more money for an acre of land than a a young farmer can. So um, forestry can pay a lot more. So all the prices of agricultural land went way up in Leitrim uh, because forestry can pay the same all over the country. And um, so young farmers weren't able to afford to buy land anymore and people were going in for to try to get loans in the bank to buy land and set up a farm. And the banks were saying, we're not gonna give you a loan for anything agricultural, but if you wanna plant forestry, we'll give you a loan for that. So once that land is given over to forestry, um, it can technically only be planted in forestry anymore. Like that's the land now, like it can never go back to anything else. And again, we're not talking about like mixed wood, nice areas where animals live and there's habitats and nature. We're talking about like really nothing lives in them, nothing at all, like, yeah, foxes and badgers and deer might sleep in there, but they have to come out to feed because there's nothing to eat in there. And yeah. Yeah, the, but that, that the whole kind of government encouraging forestry, is there any like, do they give grants for planting 
native trees or for encouraging diverse woodland? Is that a thing that exists? You know, yeah, is, yeah, they give yeah. grants for planting native trees. They don't grow as fast. The the quickest return is on Sitka spruce. So you can get grants for planting any kind of trees, but there's really you're pushed to plant Sitka because I think I think a lot of the forestry companies that end up managing land for people, Sitka is what they know. And this particular monoculture is what they know. So they don't need to educate themselves. So they don't need to spend the money on any further education. Um, but yeah, there's people around like um, our neighbor, Joe, who is just here. Like they have, I think, 13 acres of a mixed woodland. Um, and that would have gotten a grant. But that's complete. That's lovely. It's mixed and there's loads of different kinds of trees. And um, they didn't get the grant that people had the house before them. But uh, yeah, like you, you, it's, you can. It's just not what's happening. Yeah, I suppose it's not profitable to do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then Sitka, like, you'll hear, like, you know, you'll hear people say to you, they'll be like, well, you know, but we need things to build houses. But um, any architect you talk to, they say Sitka is useless for building houses and for building anything really, like, that it's not really good for anything except pulp and chipboard. And so much of it gets exported. Every single truck we saw here that was taking wood out was not going anywhere in Ireland. They all had either, they all had northern plates. So they're go, it's all going out of the country to be used somewhere else. Like, you know, what we need is, we need localized, like we need food sovereignty and we need to grow our own heating options, whether that be wood or whatever. And we need to grow our own building material within Ireland for the future. But that's not happening with Sitka. Like that's not happening with anything, but that's really pushing like a, a whole different thing. So that's pretty much it for part one. You heard Natalia there indicating the need for an alternative approach to an approach that clearly isn't working. So that's what I'm going to spend most of part two looking at, looking at what are the different approaches to forestry that could be taken. Uh, She also highlighted a few other really important things there, talking about rural isolation and uh, the effect it's having on on the human communities around these these, uh, plantation forests. Uh, There's interesting parallels. She compared... um, she compared a Sitka plantation to a house that grows 60 stories tall over 30 years. There's actually interesting parallels, I think, between the forestry policy and the housing policy. Um, now, obviously, they're very, very different in a lot of ways, but they're similar in some fundamental ways in terms of treating people, and in this case, other animals and plant life as well, treating them as objects. So many different lives looked at as, as mere numbers. So you have to ask the question, who, who actually benefits from this? And also, how did this situation come about? Who's calling the shots? Who's benefiting? And whose interests are being served? Because you, you can tell, I mean, we know full well that the government's housing policy doesn't serve the interest of, of anyone except for landlords. And that it should be clear by now that their forestry policy only really serves the needs of commercial foresters and the interests of anyone who stands to make money from that practice but a lot of people get hurt along the way. So that's what I'm going to spend part two focusing on. How did this situation come about? Um, What's the kind of philosophy behind it? What's the ideology behind it? And then we'll move on to thinking about what alternative approaches we could take that would benefit more people, basically. Talk to you in a while.